This episode of Outlines contains descriptions of a crime scene which some may find distressing, so listener discretion is advised. There is a small copse on the side of the Trent and Mersey Canal near the villages of Watcroft and Davenham. It's inaccessible by foot, a steep bank on the water's edge to which trees cling in the mud and foliage climbs. It's late September, and in the past week, I've driven hundreds of miles to get to where I am. To a towpath in Cheshire, three miles from the nearest accessible road as the canal winds through the countryside. It's been raining, and the ground is muddy, soaking underfoot and through the mesh of my trainers. I've left my normal research partner, Gemma, back in Suffolk, and instead, I'm there with Paul of the True Crime Enthusiast podcast. Sometimes, a drive like this feels easy. You find a photograph of the area, plot a rough point into a sat-nav, and before you know it, you're at the location you need. Today isn't like that. We've arrived via the town of Middlewich, the first point in our journey, and a place I'll return to later in the episode. Already we've been rained on, and taken the occasional wrong turn. All my research has suggested that our destination would be difficult to reach by road or foot, and it hasn't taken me long to understand the full weight of that. We've already had to veto one parking spot, perhaps a good one too. It's a small dead-end road near a place named Dairy House Farm, but Paul and I both consume more true crime than is technically healthy, and as we get out of the car, we're greeted by a man washing down his legs and socks with canal water. He's nice enough, but he looks intimidating, and he tells us he's had an argument with his wife. He calls it a Barney. I can see he's living in his car, and all Paul can see is the image of the man's wife floating somewhere in the canal. We're polite, but we don't stick around. We do finally find a place to park, in a marina of sorts filled with canal boats and boasting one tiny cafe, and we set off on foot down the side of a bridge and along the towpath. It doesn't take me long to realise that I've underestimated the distance we're going to have to walk, made worse by the mud and poor maintenance of the path. It's slow going, dodging nettles, low-hanging branches, and even the remains of a dead fish, its body somehow torn to pieces. More than once, I have visions of one of us slipping off the narrow track. To our left, we'd end up in the canal, and to our right, the River Dane. Occasionally, we watch the canal boats float gently past, noticing that solo travellers won't meet our eye like the tourists on the rented boats who smile and wave and continue their journeys. It's taken us over an hour to reach our destination. And when we do, we come to a stop underneath a bridge. If you're familiar with these things, you'll know that most of the bridges on the waterways bear different names. We've passed Billinge Green, Lodge and Richardson's, as well as the inventively titled 180A. And now, where we stand, half-heartedly attempting to press the water from our soaking shoes, we're underneath number 177, the murder bridge. It's constructed of flaking white painted brick, inaccessible from the path and bordered by steep banks. We're actually on the wrong side of the water. 
The place where we want to be is 70 yards from the murder bridge on the opposite side of the 25-foot-wide canal, but it's a mile from the nearest road through the wheat fields of Dairy House Farm, and there's no easy way to access the area. Just like there wasn't, back on October the 8th, 1967, when two teenage boys out hunting for fox earths in the undergrowth of the copse made a terrible discovery. Half protruding from the sloping ground lay the part skeletal remains of a human body. The area was so overgrown that policemen had to wade through mud using scythes to clear their way through the long grasses and undergrowth. When they did, they were met with the sight of a shallow grave. The hole measured two foot by six and was roughly 1.6 feet deep. And buried there was the body of a small man. The pathologist on the scene was Dr Charles St Hill, who immediately set about performing a post-mortem. He took samples of teeth, hair, tissue and clothing to be analysed back in his livable lab. Speaking at a hastily arranged press conference the next day, Detective Chief Superintendent Arthur Benfield, head of the Cheshire CID, and the man who, just a couple of years earlier, had led the successful investigation into the Moores murders, told waiting journalists, The body found was that of a man of small stature. In fact, the man was only five foot three inches tall, and initial analysis had placed him between the ages of 50 and 60. For the gathered journalists, there was only one question. Was it the body of Herbert Wilkinson, a solicitor from the nearby town of Middlewich, who by October of 1967 had been missing for almost exactly four months? Arthur Benfield couldn't yet answer that question, instead telling reporters, At this stage, we cannot assume that this was the body of Mr Wilkinson. The body was so badly decomposed that physical identification is impossible. It transpired that what remained of the man was in such a bad condition that not even identification through dental records could be achieved. Though, it would only be a couple of days before police knew the man's identity for certain. Because on Wednesday the 10th of October, two women were to be disturbed by a knocking at their front doors. The first was Mrs Gwendoline Wilkinson, the sister-in-law of missing Herbert Wilkinson, who was shown a piece of tattered tweed trouser. The second was Mrs Joyce Swindles, Herbert's sister, who was handed more fragments of cloth and a pair of size 8 brown brogues which had been found close to the grave. Neither of the women needed to take long to examine the items. Yes, those were Herbert's clothes and shoes. But I'll stop myself here, because I'm telling you this story backwards, really. The mystery of Herbert Wilkinson's death lies in his disappearance, and I'll get to that. But for now, you know the ending. You know that for four months, Herbert's body had lain half-buried in a shallow grave on the banks of the Trenton Mersey Canal. And you know that it's been 52 years, and his murder has never been solved. I'm Jess Carter. And this is the Outlines Podcast.
Herbert Bertie Wilkinson was born on February the 11th, 1915, to William Wilkinson, who worked as a clerk, and Rose, a draper. He had two siblings, a brother named George and Joyce, the sister who would one day have to identify his body by his shoes. He lived all his life in the town of Middlewich and worked as a solicitor out of an office at 74 Wheelock Street. He was never married, but until her death in 1966, he did live with his mother at their home in 79 Nantwich Road. The house on Nantwich Road was large, a semi-detached place with four bedrooms, the outside painted blue. When Paul and I visited, it was no longer blue, now red brick, with a small covered porch. I was surprised by how unassuming it seemed, just another expensive-looking building in one of the most desirable postcodes in England. I don't know what I thought it would be like, but from photographs of Herbert, I'd expected something more. It took me a fair amount of research before I found a shot of his face, but when I did, it was worth the effort. In the sepia grain of a microfilm photo, you can see that he looks relatively fashionable, a bit like the comedian Greg Proops, with a sweep of light-coloured hair and imitation tortoiseshell glasses. He seems younger than his 52 years, and at five foot three, with a walk referred to in one paper as a jaunty gait. I can see why it is that local school children gave him the, I'm hoping affectionate, nickname of Mr Wilkinson Trotter. He was a well-known character around town, fairly wealthy, but he lived a solitary life and was described as mild-mannered, well-liked but a bit of a lone wolf, a man known to take long walks on the canal towpaths and whose only regular contacts were his siblings and housekeeper. DCS Arthur Benfield said of him, Bertie Wilkinson had no known acquaintances. He was always on his own as far as we know. He went on to say, he was a fairly wealthy man, and apparently he was always sympathetic to people down on their luck. On one occasion, we understand he took a stranded youth to a local hotel and arranged overnight accommodation for him. He was regarded locally as something of a good Samaritan. I'll speak more about this later. But what's been refreshing about researching this case is the respect with which Bertie was treated by the police and in the local papers, especially in light of the events that occurred in March of 1967, three months before his disappearance. Until the death of his mother, Herbert's life had maintained a certain equilibrium, but he'd struggled to cope with the loss of his parents, and in March 1967... That had spilled over into his work life to such an extent that he was struck off as a solicitor. The Disciplinary Committee of the Law Society ordered him to be struck off for failing to observe solicitors' account rules, making declarations he knew or should have known to be untrue, using clients' money for other clients' purposes, and not attending to clients' affairs with reasonable expedition. Speaking in his defence... Bertie's counsel said that Mr Wilkinson had been sick in body and mind. There have been no complaints of defalcations, only complaints of dilatoriness. He went on to tell the committee 
that the deaths of Herbert's parents had been two great shocks to him and that he suffered from a mental blockage which led to him putting off unpleasant jobs as long as possible. In the aftermath of the disciplinary committee's ruling, according to those who knew him, Herbert did not seem to be unduly depressed and he continued his work as a clerk for the Commissioners of Inland Revenue at nearby Northwich, although not long after the ruling, his employers did ask him to resign, and when he refused, his employment was terminated. The date set for his contract's termination was June the 30th, by which time, no one would know it yet, but Bertie Wilkinson would already be dead. To understand the timeline of Herbert's disappearance, we have to go back to late May of 1967 and a telegram he sent to his niece in which he cancelled a visit to stay with her in London. The visit had been scheduled for the last week of May and the first week of June and he gave no reason for the cancellation, so to this day it remains a mystery. This phrase, it remains a mystery, can be used to cover almost everything that may or may not have occurred from that point on. Despite reports that he was in relatively good spirits in the lead-up to his disappearance, it's apparent that something was happening in Herbert's life, something that, even now, 52 years later, we can only half grasp. We do know, though, that the next important date in his timeline is June the 2nd, a Friday, there is another quote from DCS Arthur Benfield. He's speaking about that Friday and says, I think it is fair to assume that two people had a meal in the house on that morning. This sort of thing was out of character for Bertie. The identity of Herbert's morning house guest has never been uncovered. But it was on that day that Bertie slipped away, leaving a note to his housekeeper saying that he was going to Manchester and might be away for the weekend. He did not cancel any of his deliveries. He did not pack an overnight bag or a coat. He never made another withdrawal from his bank account. He simply walked out of his house and never returned. We can be relatively sure that it was on the Friday that Bertie left, because despite the fact that his housekeeper didn't see the message until Monday, on the Saturday his brother George called round, and finding the note he added to the bottom that he'd been to the cemetery before leaving again. The few days in Herbert Wilkinson's timeline between June the 2nd and June the 5th are regularly referred to as his lost weekend. This is another thing I'll talk about in more detail later in the episode, but for now, I'll just say, over that time his movements were, and still are, unclear. I believe that by Monday the 5th, Bertie's sister Joyce was concerned enough about his out-of-character disappearance to report him missing to the police, and by Tuesday the 6th of June, the news seems to have spread around the town. We know this because he was definitely seen on Monday the 5th. The sighting came in Middlewich Town Centre, around Oddfellows Passage. Arthur Benfield told the press that a housewife who had known Mr Wilkinson for years saw him in the street on Monday afternoon following his reported disappearance the previous Friday. He had a vacant look on his face and she thought he appeared ill. She was going to speak to him but decided not to do so. However, we are completely satisfied that this was Mr Wilkinson. 
Despite the fact that it would be four months before Herbert's body would be found, Arthur Benfield was entirely certain that this sighting was accurate, because the housewife in question actually reported it to the police as early as the 6th of June. There is talk that he might have been seen again on the Thursday of that same week, but it's never been confirmed. And so this, Bertie Wilkinson disappearing into Oddfellow's passage, was as far as anyone could establish the last time he was seen alive. I want to take you again now to Sunday the 8th of October 1967, four months and three days since the last confirmed sighting of Herbert Wilkinson, and to the discovery of his body by those two teenage boys out hunting for foxholes. It's difficult to really get across the remoteness of the location. The spot his body was discovered was on the opposite bank to the canal towpath, 2.4 miles across fields from Herbert's home in Middlewich and a mile over private farmland to the nearest road. I don't think I properly understood, until Paul and I visited, why it was that police were so sure that Herbert's body must have been transported there by boat. But even after 52 years, there are no easy access routes that don't involve traversing the Trent and Mersey Canal. When he was found... Bertie's body was estimated to have been buried in a shallow grave for four months. He was discovered high on the slope of the bank leading to the river, part exposed to the elements. From the remaining scraps of his clothing and underwear, police surmised that he had been fully dressed on burial, although there was no wallet, watch, glasses or any other article of value on his body. The post-mortem examination, carried out by Charles St Hill, the Home Office pathologist for the Liverpool area, revealed that his skull bore an irregular hole measuring four inches by two inches near his right ear. Above that was a small indent with three lacerations, which appeared to have been made by an instrument with a curved rim. He'd also sustained a fracture to his larynx, possibly as a result of strangulation. Despite the fact that either of these injuries could have caused Bertie's death, Because his body was missing the internal organs, Charles St Hill told the inquest that he could not exclude the possibility of another cause of death, although it was very remote. By Sunday evening, the police investigation was in full swing. Their first port of call was to cordon off any nearby roads, and by the morning, more than a hundred rubber-booted police equipped with scythes had begun to clear foliage from the area, while frogmen and mine detector experts combed the canal and the banks for clues. Within the week, forensic tests began to take place on a number of items uncovered from different sections of the canal. It was estimated that British waterways engineers drained 20 million gallons of water from a 1,200-yard stretch between two locks near the centre of Middlewich. Of course, this is not where Herbert's body was discovered. 
it's reported that for technical reasons, it was not possible to drain that section of the water. Instead, frogmen painstakingly combed the canal bed, with every item discovered taken back for analysis. These included a spade, iron bars, sticks, a motorcycle, parts of bicycles and bedsteads. As well as their widespread search of the countryside and canal bed, police also issued an appeal to boating enthusiasts, barge crews and holidaymakers who had visited or passed through the area. Cheshire police sent out a questionnaire to all the country's 10,000 owners of what are described as light pleasure crafts, asking for help in tracing the boat used to transport Herbert's body. This line of inquiry would turn to the investigation of 7,000 canal boats, the largest the country had ever seen. Arthur Benfield told reporters, It is almost certain that the killer used a boat to reach the spot. Because of the remote location, it appears from my research that police were working on the assumption that Herbert's killer must have been a local man. As a result... They interviewed over 3,000 men and boys over the age of 15 in the town of Middlewich, asking them, Did you know Bertie Wilkinson? Have you ever visited his house? Detectives from the Northwest Regional Crime Squad were tasked with talking to other locals, asking, Did you see Bertie Wilkinson after June the 2nd, or in the company of anyone either before or after that date? They also began to make inquiries in pubs which Herbert was known to frequent around the Manchester area, where they believed he'd spent his lost weekend. Despite the fact that detectives' work was made harder by Bertie's lonely lifestyle, as the investigation moved through October, police began to receive a number of leads from members of the public. Four students came forward to say that they walked 80 miles over five days along the Trent and Mersey Canal at the beginning of June. They were carrying out a survey of the waterway between Preston Brook and Burton-on-Trent and had kept a detailed log of their walk, which they handed over to detectives. This was an hour-by-hour account of their exact locations and any boats that had passed them by as they went. This is just one in a series of what should have been lucky breaks in the investigation. Arthur Benfield was quoted as saying, Canal holidays and film seem to go together, and this certainly did seem to have been the case. No more so than in the instance of the Granada television show The Flower of Gloucester, which had been filming on June the 3rd, the Saturday of Herbert's lost weekend along the stretch of canal where his body would later be discovered. Police visited the Manchester studios of Granada TV to see a special run-through of the show, and Arthur Benfield, who seemed to spend most of his time fielding press questions, told reporters, The film proved very interesting. It gave us a lead on a number of boats that were moored there, and we saw a number of people there that will have to be checked out. It quickly transpired that many boats were not checked when entering the canal, and so this type of media became an important part of the investigation. As a result of this, on the 16th of November, Cheshire CID launched an appeal to two boys aged between 15 and 18 who were fishing in the canal at the end of May or in early June. DCS Walter Arden said, We know that on a day in early June... 
A blue canoe was drawn onto the bank near the grave at Watcroft near Middlewich, and at about the same time two boys were fishing in the canal. They were fishing, and that may be the reason they are not telling us they were there, but no action will be taken against them. We are anxious that they come forward. Detectives were also anxious to trace a couple paddling an orange canoe on June the 2nd, near to where the body was found. The scope of investigation into Herbert's murder was massive. Police spoke to almost every man and boy in Middlewich. They interrupted workers' lunches in factory canteens, talked to hundreds of schoolchildren who may possibly have played on the canal banks that June. They drained and dredged miles of waterway and spoke to 7,000 boat owners. But despite their efforts, Herbert's acquaintances were hard to find and suspects remained elusive. Before I talk to you about the few people who police identified as persons of interest during the investigation, I want to talk a little more about Bertie. It was not long after the discovery of his body that Middlewich Urban Council convened for the opening of a new chamber. Their chairman, Mr Fred Stallard, told the gathering of members that a shadow has been cast over this town to find one of its citizens in such ghastly circumstances. It was agreed that a letter should be sent to Herbert's brother and sister, which read, On behalf of the council and townspeople of Middlewich, may I offer sincere condolences on the death of your brother, Mr Herbert Wilkinson. The last few months of uncertainty must have weighed heavily with you, and its culmination in the tragic way leads me to assure you that you have the town's heartfelt sympathy in your bereavement. From the first instance that I began researching this case, certain things about Herbert's treatment in the press have stood out as anomalies. There was a delicacy in the way that he was referred to, a respect that you often don't find when covering this type of murder. There was no real speculation or dredging up of the past, and while I think it's a wonderful thing that there wasn't, I'm sorry to say that I'm going to have to do exactly that because nothing here makes any sense, and I want to understand it. For the past couple of weeks, I've been living on the road and out of others' houses. One of these is my friend Alex. It was her mother Jane who first suggested Herbert's case to me while I trawled through articles on Cheshire Unsolved Murders. It's with Jane that I've turned the story over and over to try and make sense of it. Here's the thing. Herbert's death feels personal, It does not fit within my usual expectations of the murder of a 52-year-old man. He was beaten and strangled, and then he was buried in a shallow grave. How many cases do you remember where a man was killed by strangulation? Why bother to bury him at all when the location he was found at was so remote? What could possibly be a motive for the murder of a man who kept himself to himself, and despite his troubles with the Law Society was well-respected in the town in which he lived. Jane and I have puzzled over these questions for a long time, 
and for the life of us, we can't fathom out the answers. There are a couple of small things I want to put out there, though. I've thought long and hard about whether or not to deviate into the unsubstantiated, but I can't see another way to approach this section of the episode. And so first, I want to speak about the use of the phrase, Lost Weekend, the one used to describe that missing period of Herbert's timeline between the 2nd and 5th of June. It might be unintentional, but for me, it will always be a reminder of the 1945 Billy Wilder film. In Billy Wilder's Lost Weekend, over the course of a few days, an alcoholic writer becomes increasingly irrational, much to the distress of his family and friends. In the aftermath of Herbert's disappearance, his sister Joyce Swindles was quoted in the papers as saying, We are very worried about him. We think he may have lost his memory and be wandering about. I think also of his counsel telling the disciplinary committee of the Law Society that Herbert was sick in body and mind. It might not be alcohol-related, but I think it's reasonable to say that at the time of his death, Bertie Wilkinson, for one reason or another, was not a well man. The other thing I want to talk to you about is a quote I found on the website middlewitchdiary.com. In it, the author of a blog article from 2017 remembers Bertie from his youth. He says, There was nothing exceptional about Bertie, except for one thing. Apparently, Bertie, my mother used to say darkly, liked men. There are some, she said, who think Bertie likes men a little too much. Obviously, there is no such thing as liking men too much. But this was 1967, the year that homosexuality was grudgingly and underwhelmingly legalised in England, albeit just after Herbert's death. I speak more about the issues surrounding the Sexual Offences Act of 1967 in my episode on the Tattingston suitcase murder, so I won't go back into details here. But suffice to say that if Bertie Wilkinson had been gay, he would not necessarily have had an easy time of it, even if he had lived to see its legalisation. I'm telling you this not out of a desire for speculation, but because I think it helps to contextualise a couple of pieces of information that I'm about to share. I'm not going to comment on anything I tell you from this point on. I'm just going to give you the facts. And please, bear in mind that this was the 60s, in a relatively small town, and Herbert Wilkinson was an unmarried man who liked to keep himself to himself. It could just be rumour after all. In all my research... I cannot find anything which states that anyone was ever named formally as a suspect. But back in October of 1967, police released descriptions of four men who they believed had visited Herbert in the time leading up to his disappearance. Arthur Benfield said, Several people called on Mr Wilkinson shortly before his disappearance, and a number of them have been interviewed and eliminated from inquiries, but we have been unable to trace four people. I am anxious that these four men come forward so that they too can be eliminated. We feel that they are local people and that someone is hiding something from us. By withholding information, they are making our work very difficult. 
The descriptions of the four men are as follows. Number one was a well-groomed man aged between 35 and 45. He was six foot tall and good-looking, with dark hair, a pronounced parting and good teeth. The police believed that he used an old gent's bicycle fitted with raised handlebars. Number two was a slightly built, good-looking young man aged between 18 and 22. He was five foot eight inches tall, well-groomed, with dark hair, a fresh complexion and was wearing a full-length dark overcoat. Number three was a ginger-haired youth, aged between 18 and 20, of medium height, who in June of 1967 had a heavily bandaged hand and was wearing yellow-coloured boots. Finally, number four was a heavily built man aged between 35 and 45 with a round face who wore a uniformed coat similar to that of a railway man. He was about five foot seven inches tall and carried a haversack. He also walked with a slight limp. As far as I can establish, none of these men were ever identified. The next disparate piece of information comes courtesy of the inquest into Herbert's death. In October 1967, 19-year-old William Lawrence Ansell from Stoke-on-Trent reportedly bound his own hands with a tie and then hanged himself by his belt while being held in the Risley Remand Centre in Warrington. Risley, Jane informs me, was once known locally as Grizzly Risley, it doesn't take much research to discover that in the 60s, Grizzly Risley had a reputation for suicide. In the first few years of its operation, there were 12 instances of death by hanging, and William Ansell was one of these. It was confirmed by Arthur Benfield that when questioned routinely by officers in the days after Bertie's death, Ansell told police that he had met Herbert in a cafe in Manchester. I don't believe that this information was ever confirmed, and there is no proof that Ansell visited 79 Nantwich Road in Middlewich. But it is reported, and has been verified, that contained in his suicide note was mention of Herbert Wilkinson's murder. I believe that, as a result of this, police did seize and examine William Ansell's diaries, but nothing of interest was discovered. The article from which I got this information is an interesting one, because it's the only time in all my research that I've found the word homosexual used to describe anything related to Bertie. In this case, it's a somewhat cryptic footnote to Ansel's hanging. It reads, The arrest of Ansel and a number of other young men in connection with the theft of lights from the bus in the potteries led police in Staffordshire to investigate a widespread circle of homosexual activity. I've tried to find out, but I have absolutely no idea what this is actually referring to. If anyone knows, then please feel free to email me at theoutlinespodcast at gmail.com, because I'm at a complete loss. We're starting to near the end of Bertie's story. As 1967 rolled onwards, the leads began to dry up, and after the inquest in March of 68, there are no new articles on the murder until the 25th of September 1969. It is then that police confirm that they have been speaking to a 31-year-old Middlewich professional man who lived only a mile away from Herbert's house on Nantwich Road. 
and who claimed he had received a series of spirit messages relating to the murder. The man, who was never named, submitted a 24-page dossier to senior detectives in which he reportedly described how the murder had happened, the location of Herbert's missing watch and wallet, and the route taken by a canal boat used to dispose of the body. Strangely, the medium had only discovered his gift during a mock psychic session two years before. He told police that to begin with, the messages dealt with spiritualist philosophy, but then, and this is a quote, One night, I received an incoherent message which described an act of violence. At first it did not seem to make sense, but later it became evident that it referred to the murder of Herbert Wilkinson. Arthur Benfield said, There are a lot of things which this medium says which are possibilities and have been investigated during the inquiry, and I am very grateful to him. We will be very interested in any more information his gift may reveal. I find this to be very strange indeed. I have, admittedly, limited knowledge of the investigation into the Moores murders, but I can't believe that Arthur Benfield was a man prone to take seriously information given to him by psychics. Though, to me, what stands out is that the man lived only a mile away from Nantwich Road. He had only discovered his gift after Bertie's murder, and that he had submitted a hugely detailed account of what had happened. I'm inclined to think that rather than believing in psychic powers, Arthur Benfield initially thought this man to be a credible suspect. This is where Bertie Wilkinson's story comes to a close. I've wrestled long and hard with the facts of the case, trying to understand why he was murdered, or who might have had motive to do so. And I'm not sure that I'm any closer to answers now than I was when I began. It's been 52 years since his killing, and the likelihood is that whoever did use the canal to transport his body to its shallow grave is either dead or in their 80s. There is little in the way of accurate information out there on Herbert's death, and so, even if there is never a resolution, I'm pleased to be able to help remember a man who was known in the town he lived in as a good Samaritan, a man whose death feels utterly senseless. I think of all the cases I've covered on a regular basis, and when I remember this one, I know I'll think of the walk which Paul and I took along the canal. I'll think of the smell of the September air, the mud, the water, how the spot at which Bertie's body was found seemed to shine in the autumn sunlight, and how there was a beauty to that quiet and lonely place. I'll think of bridge number 177, the murder bridge, and how many people plot their canal holidays, pondering over its name without ever finding out the reason. So, please, if you ever find yourself on the Trenton Mersey Canal, and if you ever find yourself passing slowly under bridge number 177, look up the banks and make sure that you think of Bertie for a moment. It's been 52 years. His murder will probably never be solved. But we can remember him and his life. And that is something. This episode of Outlines was researched, written, performed and produced by Jess Carter. 
Additional input and research came from Paul Sutherland and Jane Jabour. The music was composed by Elias Hardy.